Good afternoon. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Judge Allegra Collins, and to my right is Judge Fred Gore. To my left is Judge Darren Jackson. Our clerk today is Mr. Eddie Soar, and our deputy marshal today is Richard Remillard. We have two cases on for oral argument. We have State v. Kitchen, number 21297, and Klutz Ellison v. Noah Noah's Playloft Preschool, number 21396. We will hear first from State v. Kitchen. Counsel for the appellant, are you ready? Please begin. May it please the court. My name is Kelly Manette, and I represent Mr. Kitchen in his appeal to this court. Before we begin, I would like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. A warrant is required in the rare case where the suspect has a legitimate privacy interest in the records held by the third party. That is what the Supreme Court of the United States held in Carpenter. We don't have to question if this applies to medical records. Uh, the Supreme Court has already answered that. There is a reasonable expectation of privacy in one's medical records. That was the finding in Ferguson v. City of Charleston. The state in their brief also conceded that Mr. Kitchen had a privacy interest in his medical records. Medical records clearly are protected by the Fourth Amendment. As a result, a warrant is required for the state to obtain them. The state sought these records under North Carolina General Statute 8-53. This is the statute governing doctor-patient privilege. This statute and this privilege are different than the Fourth Amendment protection. The state in their brief asserts that compliance with this statute is sufficient to obtain the records. Notably, the state does not even cite the Fourth Amendment in their brief. However, compliance with the exception to privilege does not automatically satisfy the Fourth Amendment. I just want to make sure I understand your argument. Your sole argument here before us is that 8-53 is unconstitutional on its face. No. Okay. Uh, 8-53 applies to doctor-patient privilege. My argument is that the Fourth Amendment also protects these documents in this scenario, in which the state seeks to obtain and use these medical records in a criminal prosecution. All right. And does your um, analysis depend on the fact that he was involuntarily committed, or does that not matter in this case? There are two levels to that. Um, the third-party doctrine is uh, an applicable analysis to this case. Um, and I have two arguments. And the first is in the situation in which somebody is involuntarily committed, inherently there is no voluntariness in turning this information over to the hospital who then turns it over to the state. So the hospital holding those records was not a voluntary thing that Mr. Kitchen did. Beyond that, though, uh, the fact that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy in these records, despite being held by a third party, ne uh, necessitates an analysis that the Fourth Amendment protects medical records in general. Could it be said that he waived any expectation of privacy because he would not to submit to, I guess, any kind of uh, procedures? No. Consent is one exception to the warrant requirement, but you can't force consent by saying that somebody waives their Fourth Amendment protections uh, if they don't consent. And in which case, consent is irrelevant. Either you give us permission or we take it from you. That would obliterate the purpose of the Fourth Amendment. I guess, counsel, my question is, 
is the hospital required to, I guess, looking at your request to do the analysis of it being under the Fourth Amendment versus the third party analysis, is it the third party analysis in, in retrospect in looking at the federal case law uh, an exception to that Fourth Amendment protection? The third party doctrine, I think, more substantially applies to whether or not there's an expectation of privacy that requires Fourth Amendment protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and traditionally, the view is that when you voluntarily turn records over to a third party, um, you have at least a reduced expectation of privacy because you've shared that information with a third party. Uh, what, the, what the case law makes clear, particularly when we get to Carpenter, is that the, the Fourth Amendment still does apply um, to cases or to situations in which a third party holds those records when there is a very strong privacy interest. Um, and the Carpenter analysis talks us through how that works and seems to rely on the concept that certain types of records that are created are created in a way that is a little less than voluntary. For example, with the historical cell site information, they focused on the fact that cell phones are a necessary part of our daily lives and that we all rely upon them for sort of our basic interactions at this point. Similarly, we certainly need to seek medical care. And so, when we look at Carpenter and we see that the historical cell site information is considered to have that strong privacy interest um, and that uh, necessity underlying it, the necessity of its creation, um, those same tenants would clearly apply to medical records. Uh, There's certainly a very strong privacy interest in one's own medical records and a necessity underlying uh, the the creation of them. So let me ask you this. Using the framework that you're making the argument, is there a statutory framework for disclosure exceptions for technology interest? And I'd ask that specifically to think about HIPAA and other statutory frameworks that are separate and apart from our Constitution. So if you want us to follow your thinking, help me understand how there is also guidance for that cell phone technology procedural safeguards such as in HIPAA. So HIPAA allows a disclosure, and HIPAA is a federal law that that controls um, sort of the, the medical records privacy and protection. And HIPAA requires a court order or a search warrant in order for medical providers to turn the records over. In other words, they can't simply respond to a subpoena or a request without consent or something like that. Um, And and this relates, I think, a little to Carpenter again, where there was a federal law that gave a statutory framework for obtaining those records uh, with a court order. But the Supreme Court said, because the Fourth Amendment applies, you need more than a court order. You need a search warrant. So does HIPAA require a specific search warrant, or is it specific to a judicial official or an order from the court? It is satisfied with an order from the court. So is it that analogous to 8-53 and a court signing an order? So HIPAA is written from the perspective of uh, what the medical providers are and are not allowed to do. 
8-53 is the doctor-patient privilege, the privilege that is held by the patient in those records. Mm -hmm. And then the Fourth Amendment applies in situations in which the state seeks the material in order to prosecute or investigate the defendant. So these are all sort of separate aspects of this. There are certainly situations in which the Fourth Amendment does not apply, and 8-53 does, for example, in a civil matter. Um, or, for example, when the defendant seeks information as part of, of their work on, on the case. But in the situation where the state is seeking those, then we have that state action and that state search that necess necessitates a warrant as opposed to a simple court order. So HIPAA saying that a court order is sufficient is not necessarily an endorsement that that satisfies the Fourth Amendment. Once we acknowledge that the Fourth Amendment applies, the state must either have a valid exception or a search warrant. And in this case, they had neither. The state acknowledges that there is no applicable exception to the warrant requirement uh, and simply relies upon a judicial order based off of less than probable cause. Just so I'm clear, if the Fourth Amendment does not apply to these records, then there is no issue, correct? If the Fourth Amendment did not apply, yes. then there's no claim that the statute was not complied with. Okay. Um, but, but once we get to the level of the Fourth Amendment applying, then they need either a warrant or an exception, and they have put forth neither. So, counsel, walk us through. So it sounds like your basic tenet is a search warrant versus a court order. Is that fair to say? Yes. So are you saying that a judge was presented with an order to sign and that judge did not give it the same scrutiny that a judge would for a search warrant? Absolutely. So this was a motion filed by the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. um, it made, it, it was just set out in a motion with allegations that came out of, I would presume, discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and the order uh, did not find probable cause. There was no affidavit. There was no evidence presented. There was nothing akin to the sort of the confines that we, we put a search warrant into. Okay. But still there is judicial scrutiny of what is being presented, correct? There was judicial scrutiny under the exception provided in 8-53, not under a Fourth Amendment analysis. Well, let me, let me just take a step back. So you're saying that the, there was scrutiny by the trial judge was not good enough, or is that it just wasn't under this standard which you think should apply? Because I'm sitting here pondering, there's a judge sitting on the bench, there's arguments going back and forth for a motion that's been presented and defense counsel is being given an opportunity, and there's a judge's signature. So I want to make sure I'm understanding is that you feel that that scrutiny wasn't enough, or you feel that there should have been a higher scrutiny? And there's a difference in those that question. So upon, just follow what I'm saying. That scrutiny didn't happen, or it needs to be a higher level of scrutiny? I think a little bit of both. Okay. Um, the, there wasn't a court hearing on it. This occurred in chambers. Mm -hmm. But there was no evidence put forth before the judge in the way that is required for a search warrant or the functional equivalent of a search warrant. So in that respect, when we're applying a search warrant framework to this, it did not rise to the level of what is required to obtain a search warrant. Additionally, the judge did not assess the, the information presented 
under a probable cause analysis, which would be required if the Fourth Amendment applies. And what says the judge didn't do that? The order does not reference probable cause. Okay. There is no probable cause finding. I, well, I guess the order doesn't say that, but what says the judge didn't do that? There's no record of the judge making a probable cause finding. Okay. okay. And so there's no record to be reviewed by the trial judge in determining whether or not that was an appropriate finding and whether or not within the confines of the motion it rises to level probable cause. And it would be um, inappropriate for this court for the first time on appeal to find that we rise to the level of probable cause. Okay. Thank you. So is it is it your belief that you that a prosecutor would never be able to make use of eight? Dash 53, that he would, he or she would always have to get a search warrant for medical records and the 8-53 would just really apply to civil actions? I, so the Fourth Amendment applies when the state is seeking the information in some investigatory way. Um, I suppose there could be an argument about if they are seeking those records for a witness, but it's hard to imagine a scenario in which they're doing that without a level of suspicion about that witness. Uh, so I think in general, yes. So with no exception to the warrant requirement and with no search warrant, we have an illegal search and we have evidence that was admitted into court that should not have been admitted. That evidence was obtained only after the prosecutor stated and after the judge found that it was necessary for the general administration of justice. Which is 8-53, correct? That is. So, and under 8-53, there must be either an affidavit or otherwise evidence. And that was argued, or at least that was in the motion to suppress, but you have abandoned that argument on appeal, am I correct? That is correct. Um, the state cites State v. Scott in support of their argument, but I think it is actually a pretty critical case to understanding that our Supreme Court has extended Fourth Amendment protections to medical records. In State v. Scott, this court found that the, um, the information alleged in the motion did not rise to the level required by NRA Superior Court Order and by 8-53. Uh, therefore, the evidence should have been suppressed, but applied a statutory prejudice analysis. Our Supreme Court reversed and sent it back to the Court of Appeals saying that it necessarily implicated federal constitutional issues uh, because the, there is a Fourth Amendment standard that inherently was not met if this statutory exception was not met. And that harmless error is a correct prejudice analysis. This, the state Supreme Court also noted that probable cause was the appropriate suspicion that was required uh, for obtaining those records. Uh, so our state Supreme Court has already functionally found that the Fourth Amendment applies to these records and that probable cause is the appropriate standard um, under State v. Scott. Further, there's been evolving case law in the, in the Supreme Court and in our courts regarding implied consent offenses um, and uh, per se exceptions to the warrant requirement. McNeely and Birchfield and State v. Romano all hold that uh, these per se exceptions to the warrant requirement saying that an implied consent offense functionally gives consent to obtain somebody's blood if they are unconscious um, or upon their arrest um, 
that's unconstitutional. And so in these situations um, — So is it just unconstitutional, the blood draw, or is there something else? The blood draw is unconstitutional. Okay. Um, because there's a needle going inside a body. Isn't that very different than what we've got here? It, it is and it isn't. So that's a physical taking from the defendant. Um, so it's not necessarily directly analogous to the, the medical records created by the hospital. Um, but the problem that is being created by the, the use um, of the state in this exception to the privilege in trying to get these records is that now the state's been told you have to get a search warrant to pierce the skin and to get that blood from that unconscious defendant in the hospital. But if they can rely on getting the medical records, which actually provide more detail and more information than that blood ever would, and they don't have to get a search warrant in that moment, then we are functionally allowing them to sidestep those rulings. Um, and that's another concern and another issue involved in this case. So, counsel, let me make sure I'm understanding that argument, because I think that's a, that's a leap there to say that we are looking at it from the requirement to actually do the draw versus the requirement to force that to get the records. Because I don't, I, I think Judge Collins' question is, is on point, because I don't want the argument to be clouded, because I think procedurally the result of that is, is very, very different in, in context of what is happening in this case. And so I, I want to make sure I'm understanding your analysis of how you're wanting us to look at those new cases, which clearly deal with actual draw. So get me to how that gets us to records versus force extraction of the blood. So when there is a car accident, and there's a suspected drunk driver that's taken to the hospital who's unconscious. These cases say you can't rely on uh, the statutory uh, giving of consent based off of their implied consent from driving on the highway, right? Um, and so the officer who escorts that defendant to the hospital either has to go get a search warrant or have the exigent circumstances to sidestep the search warrant or they can try to obtain the medical records later on. And in this scenario, what I'm trying to point out is that this statute it is a lower standard than what is required for a search warrant, a search warrant for that blood or a search warrant for those medical records. And applying this lower standard is allowing the state to obtain those records at a later date that contain additional information, additional pieces of privacy, um, and use them against the defendant on a lower standard. But it is, it's, it's a lower type of search. You are not invasive with a needle, and that is what the protection of the Fourth Amendment applies to. It's not the information gleaned from that, correct? I'm going to disagree with that, Judge Collins, because in Carpenter there's a healthy discussion about the concept of um, papers and, um, and, and the privacy rights that are implicated in the searches of those papers. Um, traditionally, we looked at a Fourth Amendment analysis in 
some sort of trespass, some sort of physical trespass sense. But over the years, and there's a really good discussion in Carpenter about this, that has expanded, and the understanding of how technology impacts the collection of private information in a non-physical trespass way has expanded our understanding of the right to privacy. But, Council, wouldn't that touch on where the body's physically located versus something that is medically later to be found as a test result? And I understand the, the Carpenter analysis because it's actually dealing with, you know, the government doesn't always need to know where you're physically located. I get the argument, mm -hmm. but, you know, if we're, if we're splitting hairs as close as we are, what Judge Collins is touching on is that it is a less invasive analysis because in Carpenter, it could be used to locate where you're pinpoint, you know, where you're located. In this instance, it's a test result that is of the body, but not of the body at that particular time. So get us to how your physical location and that privacy right of where you're physically located is not entitled to be known by the government versus a test result that is not being forced by the government, but wants to get that test result. So the, the information contained in your medical records is highly private in nature. We share a lot of information with our doctors, and our body shares a lot of information with our doctors. Uh, it can be embarrassing. Uh, it can be invasive information. Um, it is certainly information that most of us wouldn't want out in the public sphere. Um, and I will point to Ferguson v. City of Charleston saying, the reasonable expectation of privacy enjoyed by the typical patient undergoing diagnostic tests in a hospital is that the result of those tests will not be shared with non-medical personnel without her consent. So this is the United States Supreme Court saying there is a reasonable expectation that, that, that the information that results from tests done at the hospital will not be shared. So that right to privacy has been established. So how do we balance that with HIPAA and the exceptions within HIPAA some of them being for judicial or administrative proceedings? Again, I would point to um, non-Fourth Amendment implicated court orders that only have to comply with HIPAA and privilege analyses. So if I am a civil litigant and medical records are, are germane to the discussion that we're having, I wouldn't have to comply with the Fourth Amendment. I wouldn't need a search warrant. I couldn't obtain a search warrant, a judicial order under the structures of 8-53 and HIPAA would be sufficient. So HIPAA saying that a court order is sufficient I don't think is an endorsement that also satisfies the Fourth Amendment. It gives the broader aspects of where, um, where there may be court-involved um, needs for records. I want to jump to a different spot. Um, how is this prejudicial? Well, it is prejudicial in multiple ways. First of all, um, I think the state saying that these records were necessary and the judge finding that they were necessary uh, already gets us there. But beyond that, uh, these records provided a number. Um, they provided substantial evidence against the defendant. And they also provided the state with an argument that the reasonably possible alternative theory um, that this, this defendant's mental health was the cause of the behavior that was being seen, um, the behavior that was relied upon so heavily as evidence of intoxication. The prosecutor said in his closing statement, I gave you the medical records. 
you can see from the medical records that it was just his intoxication, that there isn't a medical reason or a mental health reason. And so they provided the prosecution with the evidence that was necessary to close that loop. Without these records, the state would have been, would have had to argue under an appreciable impairment standard and would not have had the information to close that loop and to say that, that what was being seen and the behavior that was being relied upon could only have been caused by intoxication. Counsel, isn't it fair to say that their officers were able to testify as to the, their observations um, and, you know, as lay witnesses and the evidentiary rules allow for them to testify their observations of it and then allow the jury to go from there? Um, so, so how, if the officers were able to testify to their observations as far as how the defendant was acting, how does the medical records make it prejudicial if those officers were able to testify their observations as to how the defendant was acting? So the state relied pretty heavily on the defendant's behavior as evidence of his intoxication. Um, and their, their observations were certainly admissible. Those are certainly admissible. But under a pure appreciable impairment standard, which is no doubt a harder standard to make, um, combined with, with the fact that the medical records, the 60 pages of medical records, uh, were used to say that that couldn't have been caused by another source. There couldn't have been another non-impairment um, explanation, say mental health or a medical issue, um, that could have caused some of the behavior issues that were being seen, that, that prejudiced the defendant in this case. I guess, I, I understand your argument. I guess the question is, does it the number carry the day for the state because it's almost like either you're pregnant or you're not it's either a 0 0.08 or it's not so how does the additional information prejudice the client if the number came in because either the number was there or the number wasn't so how does that additional information as judge collins asked prejudice? So the number only came in through the medical records. There was no other source of the, of the number. Understood. But what I'm asking is, since the number was there, how does the additional information from the mental health standpoint, how does that prejudice the defendant if the number was there? Well, if the Fourth Amendment applied and this was an illegal search, mm -hmm. neither would come in. Uh, true, true, um, true. But uh, my understood. point about the additional information mm -hmm. is that it foreclosed an alternative explanation that could have been argued from the evidence, um, the other evidence in the case, uh, that easily could have caused doubt in the mind, minds of jurors as to whether or not he was impaired by a substance. Uh, if there are no other questions, I will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Hmm? Oh, four minutes. Hey, Allegra, are you okay with giving her a couple extra minutes? I've asked the question, but I took her away. Are yeah. you okay? Yeah. I hate doing that and then not get it. She'll be fine. May it please the court. I'm Catherine Haithcock from the Attorney General's Office on behalf of the state. The issue in this case is whether the state offered reasonable grounds supporting issuance of the order for medical records. It really comes down to the meaning of similar evidence under 8-53 and what is similar evidence to an affidavit. 
There was clearly confusion between the state and the defendant in Carteret County on what similar evidence meant. They knew Scott existed. There was briefing on Scott. There was discussion of the Scott case. And the state felt that the forecast of the factual allegations and the list of the charges supported issuance of this order for medical records. And the defendant argued that no sworn allegations from a witness with personal knowledge meant that there could be no issuance in this case for medical records. I think we're going to jump over that because that's been that issue I don't think is before us. They have abandoned the issue of whether there was other similar evidence. We don't have an affidavit. We don't have any motion that was verified. We don't have any witnesses. So, but that's not before us. Okay. So what I want to focus on is, was this a Fourth Amendment search and why not? Well, of course, the constitutionality of a statute hinges on whether there's one instance in which the statute could be found constitutional. 8-53 has been consistently applied for years and years. Um, in most cases, it is supported by personal evidence. And I think we wouldn't be here today if there was, if the statute's um, portion about similar evidence was interpreted to require a sworn statement by someone with personal knowledge, like in Durdak, Thier, Altman, and Smith. This appears to be a facial challenge to the statute on behalf of the defendant. Although let's, let's, she has said it, it's not. So let's look at as applied in this case for criminal prosecution, because I, th I think that's where we've narrowed it. So has, is using 8-53 to obtain medical records to be used in a criminal prosecution, is that a search under the Fourth Amendment? And if so, then we can, we'll address the if so after that. Sure. Well, under State versus Scott, um, to comply with the Fourth Amendment, the request for medical records has to be supported by more than a bare allegation, um, by reasonable suspicion, by probable cause. And the state contends that that Fourth Amendment standard was met in this case by the state's motion. Um, so, so you're saying that the Fourth Amendment does have to be met, but that this motion met it and that this order found probable cause? I think this order did find probable cause. This, the this motion is, alleged, the motion is on pages 12 to 17 of the yeah, record. Yeah. Um, it says that the defendant was charged with DWI, which meant that the officers had an opinion that the defendant was appreciably impaired. He was arrested for DWI. Paragraph 9 said that the records are necessary for habitual impaired driving prosecution. And then paragraph 10 said that the records may contain information regarding impairment. So the state contends that this does meet the probable cause standard for issuance of the order for medical records under 8-53 and that the, the statute is constitutional. Okay, so if we then jump down to the order, the order says nothing about probable cause. Am I right? The order does not. This hearing was held in chambers, but the order does say that um, issuance was necessary for the, in the best interest of justice. Which is obviously not a, a probable cause standard, right? That's right. But okay. the state contends that the motion itself did meet that standard for reasonable grounds and probable cause under 8-53 in State versus Scott. Even if it didn't, the state would contend that any error by the state is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt in light of all of the evidence of appreciable impairment that the state presented at trial. And is that your burden as the state to yes, show? Yes, Your Honor, it is the state's burden. Here, three officers testified 
that the defendant had a strong odor of alcohol, slurred speech, red and glassy eyes. The defendant was unsteady on his feet. He was sloppy and disheveled. He had a positive portable breath test result. He had poor performance on three standardized field sobriety tests. He was belligerent in his actions and speech. He was using profanity. He urinated on the floor. He refused chemical analysis. The officers had opinions of impairment. The, re the jail requested medical clearance before they would allow the defendant to be admitted into the jail, and the defendant was generally not acting normally. So all of that went to the second prong of 2138.2 to show appreciable impairment by the defendant, regardless of that number in the defendant's medical records. And with regard to those medical records, the defendant mentioned them himself in his closing argument on page 443. He said, all this aggressiveness, noncompliance, it suddenly came about, you see, you read through the medical records, he got to the hospital, and they needed to treat him. They're not just doing that for somebody that's impaired. So the defendant himself referenced these medical records. Well, doesn't he have to reference them after they've been allowed? He can't just ignore them. It, I mean, it's a strategic decision by the attorney, but they did bring them up himself. But it, there was no cross-examination or examination on them. It was simply in closing argument, correct? It was. There was nobody testifying about these medical records. The only real relevance to the state was the 0.12 BAC, but there was no real discussion about any of the medical records. Obviously, the relevance being 0.12 is fairly significant in the DUI case, correct? I'm sorry. There's a fairly significant relevance, right, to come in under one of the prongs? It is relevant. It's not necessary, okay. but it is relevant okay. under prong one. The state would contend that there's evidence of appreciable impairment in light of all of this overwhelming evidence of guilt by the defendant. Can you address the um, defendant's argument that, that these medical records allowed the state to close that loop about why there wasn't another reason for any of this strange behavior? That it, that it wasn't a mental issue because you can see in the medical records that it wasn't, so it had to be some sort of intoxication. Well, I think that was the state's argument, that all of these factors go to impairment and have nothing to do with any kind of mental episode. Okay. So you, the state would contend you, that this counsel, uh, do you read Scott as requiring probable cause under 8-53? I think it does. I think 8-53 does have to meet the probable cause standard under Scott. And and how do you think this? What what exactly did the state put forward to the trial judge on the motion to suppress? Or, I mean, on the motion, motion um, for, production. for production that you think gets you to probable cause? I think that the state's motion, um, page 12 to 17 of the record, again, the defendant was charged with habitual impaired driving, which means that the officers had an opinion that the defendant was appreciably impaired, that he was arrested for DWI, that's paragraph 3, paragraph 9, that the records are necessary for habitual impaired driving prosecution, and number 10, that the records may contain information regarding impairment. And the state would contend that that does meet the probable cause standard to prove to the judge that um, production of these records would be in the best interest of judicial administration. And again, if they're not, the state would contend that this is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt in light of the other evidence of impairment. So are you sort of analogizing this motion for production to 
actually an application for a search warrant, saying they're, they're rather similar in their contents? I think it is. I think this is very similar to a search warrant, and that the state set forth these um, these allegations that would support issuance. Okay, it's that's not based on personal knowledge, but it does show that the defendant was impaired, charged with habitual impaired driving. These records would be necessary for the prosecution and that they may contain information regarding impairment. It certainly could be stronger if there had been a, a sworn statement by the law enforcement officer that was attached to this or a certification, but the state felt that under Scott this was good enough to okay. show probable cause. Oh, does, it, does it sort of bring us full circle, though, as far as lack of affidavit or lack of any sworn statements or lack of any testimony? There's clearly no factual basis. This is the DA's allegations not accompanied by any sworn statement. Yes, it is missing that. This could certainly be stronger. But under Scott and the briefs of the state, the state felt that this was good enough. Um, under Scott, maybe it's not, but um, again, it would be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. There would need to be clarification about similar evidence and what that means um, because of the confusion at the trial level between the state and the defendant about this probable cause level and what reasonable grounds means. So the state would contend that General Statute 8-53 is constitutional, that it was not unconstitutional as applied to the defendant in this case, and that to the extent there was any error, it did not affect the defendant's conviction in light of overwhelming evidence of appreciable impairment. And if there are no further questions, I will rest on my brief. Counsel, get, getting to that last issue of reasonable doubt, um, what did the jury have to hang their hat on but for this evidence not coming in? Well, there was lots of evidence of appreciable impairment presented by the state. I believe one of the officers said this was the most memorable um, DWI case that she had ever been involved in. Specifically, in this case, Sergeant Cummings said the defendant had a strong odor of alcohol, slurred speech, glassy eyes. He was unsteady on his feet. Officer Bruno testified that the defendant had a strong odor of alcohol, red and glassy eyes, that he was sloppy and disheveled. He had dried blood on his knuckles. He was uncooperative on the portable breath test, but still registered a positive reading for alcohol. On the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, he manifested all six clues of impairment. On the walk and turn and one leg stand test, the defendant started early. He was unsteady on his feet. He did not complete the test. He didn't follow instructions. He refused chemical analysis at the Moorhead City Police Department, refused to sign the rights form. He was belligerent and screamed on the phone to Officer Bruno that it was her effing job to call his attorney, not his. He started yelling the officer Bruno was an effing B-I-T-C-H, an effing C-U-N-T, and he started bucking up his chest and beating on his chest. Officer Sloan, the third officer who was involved, also testified that the defendant was disheveled, annoyed. He urinated on the floor and said, see what you guys made me effing do? Can, can I ask you a question? If, if there was all of this evidence, then how this motion says that these records are necessary and for this case, are they? I think they were necessary for the administration of justice because prosecutors have a duty to look at all of the evidence that's available to them. Um, some evidence can be exculpatory, 
and it's the duty of the prosecutor to look at everything, but it was not necessary for the prosecution in light of all of this other evidence of impairment. So again, throughout all of these um, conversations and interactions with the defendant, all of these officers had no doubt that the defendant was impaired. There was all of the business about him resisting in the car. They had to force him to get out inside the hospital. Defendant was yelling cuss words and telling everyone that Officer Sloan put his fingers in his behind. He was yelling, check my A, check my A. There's African-American grease in my A. And he was threatening hospital staff. So there's, there was ample evidence over this trial that the defendant was not acting normally and appeared to be impaired. How would the, how would the state have been able to prove or contest the defendant's allegations that those, that behavior was mental health related if they had not had these records to do so? Well, I think that was the defendant's argument and closing argument. They, he got to the hospital and they needed to treat him. They're not doing that for somebody that's impaired. I mean, that was his argument. Look at these medical records. There's more going on here than impairment. And the jury chose not to believe that. But the jury had the records, right? The jury did have the records. Yes, Your Honor, they did. So in light of the strength of the state's case, the uncontroverted evidence dispels any notion that the BAC evidence alone had a probable impact on the jury's verdict. And the state respectfully asks that this court affirm the denial of the defendant's motion to suppress. If there are no further questions, I'll rest on my brief. I briefly want to address two items. Uh, the first is the contention that what was submitted to the court is sufficient to satisfy the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the Fourth Amendment requires uh, evidence in the form of oath or uh, affirmation. Uh, our statutes require that as well. There was nothing of the kind here. There was no evidence presented. There was no affidavit presented. I think the problem with that, though, is that you abandoned that argument on appeal. That, I, I abandon the argument as it relates to the statutory compliance, not as to whether or not this satisfies the Fourth Amendment. But there, there, there is no argument in your brief about a lack of affidavit or a lack of verification of the motion or a lack of evidence. There's nothing there. So my, part of my argument is that there was no search warrant. The state has just uh, st stated that they believe that this is sufficient to comply as a search warrant, and my argument to that it's is not sufficient to to for an application for a search warrant. Is that what you're saying? Your argument is that this is not sufficient for an application for an application okay. or for the order coming from or for an actual search warrant. Okay. And that's Either because it's not an, it's not under oath or. So for the application, there's nothing under oath. There's nothing to to rise to the level of. Does does it matter in your mind? that uh, the person making the application is an officer of the court and is maybe maybe you're not under oath but you're bound by some uh, truthful to the tribunal requirements and you have that law license hanging on your wall that they can take away from you you know it's not a perjury charge necessarily but it's 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 that there well the, what i would say to that is in order to in order to have merits review in this court of, of a motion to suppress, a defense attorney is required 
to file with their original motion to suppress an affidavit supporting it. And that is read so strictly, that statutory requirement, that pleading requirement, that even if it was fully litigated at the trial court level, a full record is, is um, developed, the court here, for the first time on review, can deny merits review because of that pleading deficiency. And that's for the motion to suppress. So to say that we don't need an affidavit because this is a prosecutor who's an officer of the court uh, is, I think, not meeting the Fourth Amendment requirements and further uh, inconsistent with other, other case law surrounding um, the Fourth Amendment. Thank you. Uh, on, the, on the issue of prejudice to the defendant, um, I, I do want to point out again how heavily they focused on the behavior of the defendant. Appreciable impairment, which would have been the only standard available to the, um, to the state if these records had not come in, um, requires a showing that the defendant was appreciably impaired by, by alcohol, not just that he had had some in his system. Appreciable impairment. His behavior was the strongest evidence of that, and the alternative explanation for it was precluded with the medical records. Um, Further, uh, the, the information that uh, came before the, the jury in the form of argument also closed that loop because of those medical records. Um, so what would have come before the jury and what would have been put forth before them um, was very different than uh, what we had here with this, with this illegally obtained information. There was no bad driving here, speeding, that was it. So this is not a case where we had somebody weaving all over the road that gets you to that appreciable impairment. They had to show it from other causes, other mechanisms. Um, thank you. All right, we will take this case under advisement. Thank you for your arguments.